Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, Prayers of King David, with a message titled, Confidence in God. So let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm chapter 16, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. First Samuel 26, that's a chapter which narrates the life of David while he was a fugitive. Saul, the king of Israel, in whose army David had faithfully served, had become jealous. Saul had become insanely jealous of anyone who was either popular among the troops and in the country. But no one was more popular than David. And because Saul was suspicious that David might overthrow him, he sends men to his house to kill him. And David, to save his life, is now on the run. He has 600 men who follow him, and he's managing to eke out a living in the wilderness of Judea. And when we come to 1 Samuel 26, we find now the second time in which David could have, with relative ease, killed Saul, saved his life, and surely become king, but he refuses. He will not raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. If God chooses to kill Saul in some other fashion, that will be God's doing. But David will not raise his hand against the one God has anointed as king. His commitment is a great lesson to all who seek to take matters into their own hands. But David did have Saul's water jar and his spear removed while Saul slept so that Saul would always know how easily David could have killed him. And then David went over on top of a distant hill where his voice could be heard and he's addressing the king. And I I won't repeat all that David said, but I will repeat just one line. And here I'm quoting 1 Samuel 26 verse 19. Now, therefore, let my Lord, the king, hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day, that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. Now, isn't that fascinating? David's enemies, in an attempt to get rid of him, are urging him to become an idolater. You're not wanted among your people, they say. You're not wanted among the covenant people of God. And those days must have been very difficult days for David. Years later, when he reflected on them, he must have written his thoughts down. And I think Psalm 16 is just such an occasion. This is a psalm of a man who has entrusted his life fully into the hands of God, come what may. He's not like the later followers of Jesus, who, as long as the miracles kept on coming, continued to follow. But the minute he spoke of suffering and sacrifice, they drew back. And for this reason, Psalm 16 is a favorite psalm of all whose heart is fully yielded to the Lord. Some have called Psalm 16 a psalm of confidence. That is, it's not the psalm of someone who merely says, I will trust God come what may. Yeah, it does say that. But then it adds, what may come or what will come is that God will never abandon his people. You know, I remember years ago while I was visiting a group of missionaries in a very dangerous part of the world, hearing one woman say, you know, after she had talked about the dangers she faced, she simply said, I can't think of a safer place than to be in the center of God's will. Yeah, that's it. And Psalm 16 is about that. So let's begin by reading the entire psalm. It's 11 verses long. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. 
The sorrow of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You know, as a way of beginning, let me try to outline what we're about to study. The first section from verses 1 and 2 are a record of David expressing his confidence in God. And then the second section in verses 3 to 4 has David not only expressing his confidence in God, but his confidence in the people of God. He will never abandon the chosen people. And then the third section, which is the longest section in this psalm, is verses 5 to 8, and it's David expressing just how blessed he is. No, not expressing how much he's suffered for God. No, no, not at all. Rather expressing how many benefits have come to him in God. It's been worth it all. And then finally, the fourth section, verses 9 to 11, moves from David counting his blessings to counting the future blessings that lie ahead of him. David wants to say that the future promises are so staggering that he's overwhelmed at the richness he has in God. You know, all that reminds me of a conversation I once had with a man about the gospel. He had heard about the prosperity preachers, and he wanted to know if God promised him riches. And I said, no, and then went on to show him why. And then he said, well, then, why would anyone want to be a Christian? I then showed him the promises, starting with the resurrection and going back to the promises in the cross and then going forward to the promises in eternity. And that man did become a believer. I think the reason we have people leaving the faith is because they don't know what they have in God. So let's begin. The first section, as I've said, begins with David expressing confidence in God. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. See, David begins with a prayer for protection. He's been a warrior throughout his life. We don't know if David wrote this psalm in the moment of crisis, but from the rest of how it reads, it seems that that's not the case. See, I think David begins by simply acknowledging that his ongoing safety depends not on circumstances, but in God. I take refuge in God. That implies not that there is a crisis, but that David's only source of confidence in all matters always lies in God. A refuge is a safe place, a shelter, a place where we can be preserved. Come what may, says David, I will constantly seek out God as my only source of safety. And then not being content in only expressing that God provides safety, David says, there is nothing that's good outside of God. I mean, it's such an important observation. People are driven to seek things that are good, at least good for them. Many of you remember that years ago, John Piper said that he wanted to send a message to hedonistic America. He said they were not nearly hedonistic enough. They sought pleasures in things that would soon pass away when the highest pleasure of all, the pleasure of knowing God stood before them and they would not have it. But that's the thing with goodness. You know, we often say that God is good and he is, 
But here to say that there is no goodness apart from God, well, that's to say that there can be nothing of lasting value apart from God. All other things, I mean, first, they decay and come to nothing, and then second, all other things have the sting of disappointment, leave us feeling that we began by eating something so wonderful, and all we've left is the taste of gravel in our mouths. God is my refuge, says David. There's no good apart from God. And for that reason, David's unwavering. His confidence is in God and not in anyone or anything outside of God. What folly! When men had told him to follow the idols, David knew that led to ruin. Now, second, we now move from David expressing confidence in God to his expression of loyalty to the people of God. And that's such an important point. I mean, we have to imagine how cruel some of the chosen people had been to David, wanting to rid the nation of him, even though he had committed no sin. They not only wanted him to leave God for idols, but also leave the people of Israel, they said. You know, in our day, the temptation to leave the church, the people of God, has been a very real one for many. And I can, some say, I can be faithful to God without being a part of the church. So look at verses 3 and 4. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrow of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. You know, in verse 3, David is delighted in the saints in the land. You know, was the land full of hypocrites and those whose life were a disappointment? Well, no doubt. But David remembered the excellent ones, the ones he also called the saints. He knows their commitment to God. He believes them to be the most noble of all the human race. You know, the history of ancient Israel, as anyone who's ever studied the First Testament will tell you, is a history of great unfaithfulness. Idolatry in Israel was common. Faithlessness was also common. You know, in Elijah's day, the prophet had thought that he alone was left and everyone else was unfaithful. But he's wrong. Losing faith in the people of God is to forget that God always sustains a faithful people at all times. And David says, to those people who are faithful, I'm loyal. Indeed, we should all be that way. Do you ever find yourself wanting to spend time with the Lord in His Word, but don't seem to find the time? Well, here at Back to the Bible Canada, we understand some days are hectic and challenging. And that's why we would encourage you to check out our Back to the Bible Canada Bible Minute podcast. Each episode contains a one-minute audio Bible teaching message from Dr. John Newfeld, with new episodes Monday through Friday. These are perfect for those moments when you're seeking spiritual encouragement, but time is short. So you can download the Bible Minute podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts or visit backtothebible.ca slash apps. For more information, give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And thank you to all those who make Bible teaching resources like the Bible Minute available through your gracious gifts. David sees a contrast between two kinds of people. There are those who will cling to the one true God, and there are those who run after other gods. And gods, well, there may be a number of variety of those. I mean, each nation had their national god. 
The gods fought with the gods to gain supremacy, and so switching loyalties was common in David's day. David said, no matter which god is seemingly on the ascendancy, I will not offer any sacrifices to them. And the point of application is clear. Think of the differing values in our own culture. I mean, at one point in time, one set of values held, and if one didn't bow to the gods of that age, one was despised. And now the values have changed, and a new set of gods are prevalent. And let me get very practical. You know, I'm old enough to remember the explosion of the sexual revolution. And one very famous musical band saying, you know, if you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. Ah, the gods of sex. Get all of it you can. And don't worry about adultery or people being resistant to you. You can break that resistance down. And then after that came the era of the Me Too movement, in which many women stepped forward and said, we've been abused. New gods were on the horizon, new ones that now needed to be bowed down to. And David has a solution. He said, I'll bow down to none of them. I will only serve the Lord, and I will only be loyal to the people who will also serve the Lord with me. We now come to the third section of the psalm, verses 5 to 8. And in these verses, we find David expressing how blessed his life is. His commitment to the one true God, come what may, has left him without regret. Indeed, let me press this point. You know, in my life so far, I've never met a single man or woman who has ever told me I did it the Lord's way and now I regret it. But let me say from many, many testimonies of people who have abandoned the way of the Lord and now live with great regret. And so according to David, what does his life look like in the light of his commitment to God and his chosen people? Let's reread verses 5 to 8. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. I want you to notice the four blessings David says he's encountered. First, God has held his lot. Second, the lines have fallen in pleasant places. Third, David has received excellent counsel. And fourth, and finally, David notices that he's not shaken. So let's look at all four of these advantages. First, again, God holds David's lot. Now, the lot David's referring to probably refers to Joshua's allocation of the land in the first place. You know, when Israel entered the promised land and after they had conquered their foes, each tribe, as well as each clan in the tribes, and all the individual families were assigned a lot. That was their stake in the promised land. And when David says that God holds his lot, he means that in God's sovereign design, the lot that I hold was granted to me by God. This is where in English we get the language of, you know, a person's lot in life. Now, that means that the family a person was born into uh, meant that they would be raised in a given environment, the schools they attended, the opportunities they were afforded, that sort of thing. You know, our lot in life is an acknowledgement that God assigns the circumstances of our lives, the land on which we live. And given this, says David, I have no treasure that I value more highly than the Lord. God holds my lot, and that means I'm content with the circumstances that God has assigned to me. I believe that God wants the best, and I embrace his plan. Notice what an advantage that is. You know, the world's full of people who say, if only something else had occurred, if only, if only. And David never said that. God has assigned my lot, he said, and God is loving, and I'm content. 
Second, David says, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. And the lines, as with the lot, refers to the border markers of one's land, the lines that designate where they would live. David says, God has overseen that my circumstances would be pleasant. It wasn't a disappointment. I was satisfied in what God gave me. And third, says David, I have the advantage of constantly being given counsel by God. Now, what counsel is David referring to? Now, we might think that David had the advantage of, you know, a number of prophets who spoke God's word to him. And we in our day have an advantage David didn't have. He had a few prophets. We have the entirety of the biblical revelation. And furthermore, if we go to the book of Proverbs, we have an entire book in the Bible intended to teach us wisdom, skill in living, ability to make decisions that will bring the best possible outcome in our lives. Living skillfully is possible for any child of God. And because David had spent the time meditating on the wisdom of God, he says that even in the night, his heart is filled with the word of God and that instructs him in the right way. And David's saying that he has been prevented from making decisions in life that have harmed so many others. He's been kept remarkably free from harm and from ruin and from the grand mistakes that have destroyed so many. And then the fourth reason that David is advantaged by God is that David knows that he can't be shaken or I shall not be overthrown or defeated. My days have not ended in ruin. I've not been disgraced. My life has not ended in a shipwreck, he says. Now, all these things have come because David would not pour out offerings to other gods. 1 Samuel 2.30 records God saying, For those who honor me, I will honor. And that's a fact. That doesn't mean we won't suffer or be persecuted or that we won't go through difficult times. But God will not allow his chosen ones to end their lives in disgrace. But that same verse also records God saying, Those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. And that means that the earthly end of those who do not honor God is an end that will be forgotten and have no long-term purpose. Perhaps we need to meditate on these things. I mean, think of some of the great heroes of our faith. You know, if you know your Bible, remember that the great warlords before the flood, I mean, who were they? No, no, we don't know anymore. But one despised man, a man named Noah, is not forgotten from that generation. Or who are the people of the Ur of the Chaldeans? Well, we only remember one, a faithful one named Abraham. Or think of the strong kings that opposed David, and we only remember David. Do you remember the high priest Caiaphas? Yeah, you remember him, but just barely. But you do remember Jesus, the very man that Caiaphas despised. See, that's the story and the history of our faith. We remember names like Athanasius and Chrysostom and Augustine and Luther and Spurgeon, but we don't remember the people who despised those godly men and those who persecuted them. The evil ones are not honored in the end, and they never will be. Now then, David moves from his present blessings to the future ones, the ones he is yet going to inherit. These are the ultimate blessings. These are the ones that Jesus told about when he asked what would it benefit any man if he gained the whole world and forfeited his soul. So let's reread verses 9 to 11. David says, Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. See, I find it fascinating that David says his flesh dwells secure. 
I say that because we all know all flesh is grass. It quickly passes away and then is no more. But David says that he knows that God will not abandon his soul to Sheol. Now, Sheol in biblical thinking is the land of the dead. One commentator said that Sheol in the Bible is like a huge, relentless monster standing with mouth wide open, ready to swallow all the children of men as they are swept along towards it. Everything is taken away. Their deeds on earth are forgotten, and they brought to nothing. Yeah, we don't need to imagine how this is true. We, we all know it is. With each passing year, we're coming closer to that moment. But David was confident that he would not see corruption. Now, the Apostle Peter, if you'll recall, quoted this very passage in the first ever Christian sermon that was delivered on the day of Pentecost. He said that David's body did decay, but that Jesus, the greater David, his body didn't. Indeed, he was bodily raised, proving that death had no authority over him. And for this reason, we know that the ultimate fulfillment of future promises is found in Jesus. And that's true, but it's also true that David's hope that he would not see corruption was fulfilled when Jesus rose from the dead. And indeed, our hope is also fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus. We don't have pleasures for a moment and then death. Rather, we have pleasures that are eternal and that never end. See, the reality is that all humanity is either on the path of life or on the path of death, eternal damnation or eternal rewards. And that brings us to the first line in this psalm, In you, O God, I have taken refuge. How then can I ever be shaken? Thanks, John, for your message. You know, earlier you made a comment uh, that said, uh, we will not end our lives in disgrace if we look to the Lord. Is that always true? I'm going to say this, um, you know, sometimes what we understand by disgrace, like it might be disgrace in the eyes of people who are worldly. They may see our lives always as disgrace. And then let me also say that, I mean, God will choose the circumstances around our death. Uh, let's just say that. Some of us are going to die with a, you know, a note of triumph on our lips, and some of us you know, will die with a vacant mind, and we've got Alzheimer's, and we can't remember stuff. So, I mean, that's just the way in which people die, and Christians die in these fashion as well. But when I say disgrace, I mean that we will not have denied our Lord that in the end of the day, we want to be in the place where we'll hear our Savior say, well done. May it be so until the end of our lives. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Prayers of King David, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. If you found yourself struggling with your self-esteem, I can assure you, you're certainly not alone. Our self-esteem is fragile. It can blow up with kind words or accomplishments and crumble with failures or criticism. Wouldn't it be a relief to be liberated from the grip of external judgments and even our own self-doubts? Well, Timothy Keller's book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, shows us just that. Keller walks us through how centering our identity in Christ can eliminate the noise of opinions and judgments. That's why Back to the Bible Canada is offering this small but powerful booklet for free this month while supplies last. Just call 1-800-663-2425 
or visit backtothebible.ca. Request your copy today while it's still available. And please, consider how you might support this Bible teaching ministry this month.